It's hard to say when and how and where it all began. At first, you could easily brush it aside. It started as the stuff of small talk. The chatter at the barber shop went something like this. It's just a little nuisance. It's just a little small inconvenience. It's no big deal. It won't be that bad. We've been bugged and bitten by things bigger than this in the past. Uh, one woman was heard saying that the spread would stop in three weeks, maybe in four. Yes, the word around town was that there were more important things to worry about. You could say it all felt like idle chatter when it all started. It just didn't seem like something so minuscule could do anything so major. I probably don't have to tell you about how there were those postulating and proposing their theories. If there's one thing that people love more than an unproven answer, it's almost always a conspiracy theory. Some said it was the result of a foreign attack. Fingers would point in one direction or another, and then heads would nod and shake. It was them, it was those people, it was their fault. Some blamed it all on the eastern wind, as if the very air was conspiring against the land. And then some looked up to the heavens. If you know where to look, you can almost always find an angry preacher drumming up dread for the doomsayers, or a sour prophet feeding the fears of the frenzied. They'd say that God was punishing the people, both the innocent and the guilty alike. Now, if you ask me, I don't think this is a good explanation, but that didn't stop people from saying that divine anger was spilling and spewing into the land like hot lava, rolling and covering and destroying anything and everything in its path. It's funny how something so harmless on its own can be so devastating when it grows and gains mass and momentum. I guess you could say it was something like a virus of sorts. Maybe you can imagine how something small could spread from place to place, from house to house, and from city to city. Maybe you can imagine how something so itsy-bitsy could take down a people, an economy, and hopes for the future. Maybe you can grasp how something so teensy-weensy could flit and fly into everything and change everything. Maybe you know this story. It's a story about a swarm of locusts that blew and stormed into the land. What started small and as an annoyance really grew and gathered into a buzzing bug army that devoured everything that could possibly be devoured. The one man poetically described the scene, this terrible scene, in this way. From out of the sky gushed down with a cruel force, a living, pulsating stream 
striking the backs of the helpless folk like pebbles being thrown by an unseen hand. This substance had no sooner fallen than it popped up again, crackling and snapping. It flared and it flittered around like light gone mad. It chirped and it buzzed through the air. It snapped and hopped along the ground. If one looked for a moment into the wind, one saw nothing but glittering, lightning-like flashes, flashes that came and went in the heart of a cloud made up of innumerable dark brown clicking bodies. All the while the roaring sound continued. They whizzed by in the air. They literally covered the ground. They lit on the heads of grain, on the stubble, on everything in sight, popping and glittering, millions on millions of them. The people watched it, stricken with fear and awe. Here was another one speaking. The brown bodies whizzed by on every hand, alighting wherever they pleased, chirping wherever they went. The hurricane of the air, the fiendish shapes flickered and danced in the dying glow of the day. Now pity the fields that the hand of man had planted with so much care. They would swoop down, dashing and spreading out like an angry flood, slicing and shearing and cutting with greedy teeth, laying waste every foot of the field they lighted on, end quote. Yes, this is but a snippet of the devastation story recorded in the book of Joel. But this isn't all of the story. Our text for today speaks of the aftermath. Our text tells us of what happened when all of the locusts were gone. I can picture the scene, can't you? Uh, The people slowly cracked open their doors, looking out to see if it was all over, uh, scanning the horizon in every direction while holding their breaths and gasping all at the same time. Maybe you can imagine a a tiny voice shouting from somewhere down the street, it's safe to come out now, they're gone, it's over. And so the people pour out of their houses to take it all in. The crowds crane their necks and inspect the insect damage. The green grass is gone. The ground is now black and bleak. Every sign of life as they knew it had been swallowed by something that no one saw coming. To be sure, though, this isn't just a spooky and strange tale about locusts gone mad. It's a human story of heartbreak and loss. Futures had been planted in the ground, futures that would never grow to be harvested. I wonder, have you ever planned on something or dreamed about something only to watch it wither and vanish because of some factor that you couldn't anticipate or control? Have you ever had to accept something that you couldn't change? This is a story of economic decline, 
It's a plot line of unimaginable loss. It's a tale of a whole people mourning and lamenting and grieving. And then, right in the middle of it all, there is Joel and the people of God trying to make sense of it all. Where is God in all of this? What do you do when everything falls apart, when something crumbles or, or cracks in your life or in your neighbors? The first image from our text today is one of despair and disaster. And then, just when everyone is standing around, hands in the air, wondering what's next and how they can go forward, a drop of rain falls to the ground. And before long, the soil is drinking in lots of big, heavy raindrops that are falling from the sky above. And from all of the loss, the rain is a symbol of hope, a signal that life from the ground might not be ruined after all. Maybe, just maybe, good news can be rekindled even and especially when we thought it was beyond resurrecting, just as destruction had come from something small and seemingly insignificant, maybe hope and joy could spring up from a handful of itty-bitty, teensy-weensy, tiny seeds. You see, in Joel's account, we witness the people of God who must choose how to respond to the worst that life had thrown their way. Would they do the work of investing in the land again? Could they transform a barren place into a place of bounty? But it was about more than whether to work the land again. There were more extensive questions, questions like what kind of people would they be? Would they work together? Would they show up for each other? Could they go from praying in their private homes to praying together in one room about what the love of God could do to transform all of the brokenness that they were carrying? Could they learn and lean into a sacred story at a time when everything felt so fragile? To encounter the story of Joel, that he tells is to encounter a people who made up their minds against all odds to work together to rebuild all that was lost. Recently, Lacey Warner, a professor from my time at Duke Divinity School, wrote a reflection about a grass fire that raged on for hours in the pasture of the farm where they live. She wrote about the work of putting out the fire with the help of neighbors and four different volunteer fire departments. In her words, quote, the most difficult and aspect and most exhausting aspect was extinguishing the fire that was unpredictably being carried about by the wind. But they found that we found that if we spread out and, and addressed where the fire burned the hottest, we could work together to contain the flames, end quote. And she also wrote about the scorched earth that was left behind and about how all the local farmers reminded them of what would result after the fire. 
You see, if they dared to work the land again, it would be filled with potential and promise. If they can get through this challenging season, their future crops and gardens will thrive in the rich soil. But to get there, they still have to wait and wade through a season of loss and ruin. Warner wrote about what it means to find God's renewal in the ashes and how collaborative solutions are essential, especially in times of crisis. She named how there are times when circumstances are beyond our control, and it's what we do in these moments that defines us. In the book of Joel, right when everything looked to be at its worst, we're told about how sons and daughters, young and old alike, start dreaming and praying about what they can do together. It's a story of intergenerational resiliency and trust and courage in the face of chaos and change. In so many ways, being with you this morning today is meaningful. A year ago on this very Sunday, I stood over there at that lectern and tried to fight back tears as I was telling you that our family would be moving to Iowa. That was a day brimming with emotion for us. For over five years, I got up early and stayed up late and prayed with you and ate with you and celebrated with you and grieved with you, and I came to love all of you, and I still do. One of the strange things about leaving in the middle of a pandemic was that we didn't get a chance to say goodbye to many of you. And more than that, I didn't get to be a part of so much that I dreamed about doing with all of you. We left Peachtree and friends in a city we'd grown to love at a time when goodbyes were masked, not only by cloth and fabric, but also with questions about what would be next for us and for all of you. We didn't yet know the full extent of the reverberations of a virus and of all the other things that would unfold in this place and all over the globe. On Friday of this week, I overheard my son Benjamin say with an eight-year-old sense of discovery, you can't change the past. You can only change the future. But someday, the future will become the past. With childlike wonder, and I think as a budding philosopher, he was naming how our present and future actions eventually become a part of the past. You see, we live into the memories and into the moments that define us. This means that we can still change the plot line. We can make a difference in the past whenever we boldly, courageously, and faithfully act from where we are. The simple fact is that I'm here today because my friend Jared needs some time to rest and to heal. And I shared with Jim that I'd be happy to preach some Sunday if that would be a help. And so in a text message, I was invited to preach at Peachtree with one condition. Avoid the book of Lamentations because it's a time for something uplifting. And so naturally, I've selected the lectionary text from Joel where the locusts rage and destroy everything in sight. Here's the thing. Sometimes the opportunities for greatness and joy and hope come in the very moments when we're tested and tired, 
when we're playing hurt and when life doesn't go like any of us had planned for it to go. And so as a guest preacher who still cares very much about all of you, I want to ask you what kind of church you'll choose to be a part of in this crucial moment. How will your actions in the present and in the future be a defining moment in the history of Peachtree? How will you choose to support each other? How will you choose to forgive each other? How will you choose to encourage each other? How will you choose to be kind and patient and gentle? I'm thrilled that Reverend Bond is carrying forward a community respite program for those facing cognitive challenges and special needs. I also love that she's calling it the Legacy Club. To understand a legacy is to understand what's gone before us, where we are, and what's next, valuing and appreciating each phase of life. As Peachtree gets closer and closer to 100 years of faithful, inspiring, and innovative ministry in Atlanta, what are you paying attention to? Where and how are you showing up in this sanctuary and outside of it? Do you believe that the best chapter for Peachtree remains unwritten? I'll tell you that I do, and I believe in what happens when the people of God join together to work and to pray and to care. In one way or another, we've all seen our fair share of unexpected challenges and changes. But my dear friends, don't forget the lesson of Joel. In the end, it's not a story about what bugs and bothers us, about what destroys and decimates. It's a story that begs us to join together. It's a story that invites us to dream dreams, to cast a compelling vision, and to enact a faithful present and future. If you listen closely, and if you put your ear to the ground of this text, you might just be able to hear a small voice that's inviting you to be a part of transforming the land and the community that you all still call home. You might just hear a divine voice calling you to let your faith be daring and compelling and energizing. Now is not the time to hide in your houses. Now is the time to show up for each other and to make this the church that God is longing for it to become. Now is the time to realize for the first time, or maybe all over again, how the story of God eventually produces belonging and hope and healing and, yes, even joy. Now is the time to continue a legacy of faith that makes a lasting difference. Now is the time to be a part of what's next. Amen.